Our sovereign God, we praise you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are so thankful that you have shown yourself to be clothed not only in power, but also in grace in our lives. And we praise you, Lord, that you have done that most fully in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've shown that you are a God of, of justice and at the same time mercy. And on the powerful shoulders of the Lord Jesus, you've demonstrated that you have not turned a blind eye to sin, but you have punished it fully. And that by placing our sin upon Jesus, you have, you have been gracious to us. And we thank you that that is the case and that now, by the faith that you have granted to us, we, we are now ab- able to call you Father and with joy to open your word by your Spirit, able to understand this Word, and we are moved to greater affection for your Son. We, we ask that as we study these things before us this morning, that that, that, would, that would be the case, that we would be moved to love Jesus all the more, that we would grow in faith as we see more and more of Him. We pray these things in His name, Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, and again our text is verse 21 through verse 43. So I would ask you to stand with me as you're finding your place there, and we'll read that entire text once again. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd And touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what was said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, 
Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You may be seated. How significant is faith to the Christian life? The New Testament would tell us that it is absolutely essential because 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that we, we walk by faith. That is, we live by faith, not by sight. We, we've been given these promises in Christ, promises that we, we can't see with our eyes. They're completely unseen. And so Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We find in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that the apostle commends the church there for their work of faith. So all over the New Testament, we find faith attached to various components of, of the Christian life. We walk or live by faith. We obey by faith in Christ. Assured that what He's promised, things that we can't see, He will certainly deliver. Faith is so significant, it's so central to the Christian life that the New Testament's word of choice for Christianity is faith, the faith. And you see that phrase in the New Testament, the faith. That's, that's how the Bible refers to Christianity. Trusting Jesus is not just the beginning of the Christian life. Rather, it is the Christian life. And in trusting in Him, we are day by day, even moment by moment, saying and living this truth, I and this world are not enough, but rather, I need and cling to you, Jesus. And we saw, we saw in chapter 4, the disciples doubt in the midst of the storm that even those who have, have left everything and followed Jesus, even they can find it a challenge to trust Jesus in all circumstances. So we, we need, the Bible t teaches, to constantly grow in faith. And so passages like the one that we have just read are helpful in that they allow us to revisit the nature of faith and the power of its object. Helping us to grow in faith it seems to be a priority for Mark here in this section that, that, that extends from chapter 4 to chapter 8. And we find Mark doing two things repeatedly to that end. First, Mark repeatedly 
shows us that Jesus is worthy of trust. He's worthy of trust. He, he, does, he does that. Mark does that by highlighting Jesus' power and compassion. He's affirming to us over and over that Jesus can help us, wants to help us, and will help us. The second thing that Mark is doing over and over is that he's teaching that faith is the lifestyle of the disciple of Jesus. That is, we live lives that affirm this conviction that Jesus can help us, wants to help us, will help us. And this passage, it sandwiches two encounters together to teach one overarching truth about faith, which is that well-placed faith is God's appointed means for the appropriation of divine power. Well-placed faith is God's appointed means for the appropriation of divine power. If you weren't here last week, then let me tell you that this is actually the second part of a two-part message on this passage. So if you, if you want the full treatment on, on this passage, you'll want to get online and look at the message from last week. Last week, we began by just looking at, at the first theme in this text. The, that theme is in your notes, and that is that well-placed faith has Christ as its object. Well-placed faith as Christ as its object. Jairus, the, the, the leader of the synagogue here, and this hemorrhaging woman, they both had faith. Their faith was central to the narrative. Jesus himself makes it central. And we noted that their faith is not this kind of generic, abstract, objectless kind of faith that some in our culture would claim to have, where, where people just kind of trust in in. In nothing. They, they just claim to have faith and they can't really point to anything or anyone concrete that they're trusting in. But rather these two in this narrative, they clearly trust in Jesus. Jairus came to Jesus and fell at Jesus' feet and begged Jesus to come and help his daughter. And this woman had heard her reports about Jesus. She sneaked up upon Jesus and touched his garments thinking to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. The object of their faith had an object, I'm sorry, the object of their faith was Jesus. And, and that's, that's what makes well-placed faith well-placed. Jesus is the object. So we, we trust in Christ because He's the center of all things, and He is the one who actually accomplishes our salvation. The second theme, as we move on this morning, is that well-placed faith is expressed in action. Well-placed faith is expressed in action. So look again at, at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands, your hands, on her so that she may be made well and live. We have all these verbs telling us what Jairus did as a result of what he believed. His faith is expressed in action. He came, he fell, he begged. And, and though the messenger reported his daughter's death later in the passage and said, hey, look, let's just leave Jesus alone now, there's, there's no mention that Jairus was tempted to give up. He went on with Jesus to his house. Likewise, the woman acted in faith. Remember, this woman is something of a, of a 
of a social outcast. She is ceremonially unclean, and yet she pushes her way through that crowd. She reaches out and touches Jesus, and, and we see that even her thoughts are guided by faith. She's thinking in accordance with faith. If I even touch his garments, I'll be made well. I used the, the analogy last week that when we cross from Ohio into Kentucky, we're putting our faith in that bridge. We're trusting this bridge can get me to the other side. It can support my weight. Now, if we say, I, I, I trust completely that this bridge, this bridge can hold my weight, see me safely across to the other side, but we refuse to cross the bridge, we've shown that we, we really haven't placed our faith in the bridge. Walking across the bridge shows that we really do believe that it's safe. And James, in his epistle, he, he makes a distinction between a brand of so-called faith that claims to believe but does not issue forth in action on the one hand, and genuine faith on the other hand, which inevitably is accompanied by action. And he writes of that former so-called faith, he says, hey, even the demons have that kind of faith. That, that is not a living faith through which God works to bring salvation. True saving faith is a faith that acts. It, it, it issues forth in behavior. Remember I said earlier this morning that faith, faith says, I believe Jesus can help me, wants to help me, will help me. In other words, I believe everything that Jesus has said about Himself. And if that faith is living... If it's real, I will live a life that says, Jesus can help me, wants to help me, will help me. I believe what He says. So I, I could say that I trust Jesus all day. Action, my life, is what shows that I really do. Jairus, who's just desperate for his daughter to be healed, he could have thought to himself, could have said to everyone who would listen, Jesus could totally heal my daughter. And, and I've seen enough of him in, in, in his interactions with other people that, that I know he's compassionate and I know that he, he would heal my daughter. But if he didn't go to Jesus and ask him to, does he really believe those things? And this woman, obviously desperate to be healed, she's tried everything. Her desire to be well is not in question. We've got her thoughts right there on the page. If I just touch His garment, I will be made well. What would we conclude if she did not press through that crowd and reach out and touch Him? Well, she doesn't really believe that. She's willing to spend every dime she has on doctors, but she is not willing to reach out and touch Jesus. She doesn't really believe that if she touches Jesus, she'll be made well. Our actions reveal what we really believe. The two people in this text, they are exhibiting Trust in action. And that's what you're doing every time you obey. Obedience equals trust in action. Think about the temptation to engage in, in any kind of sexual immorality. When, when you say no to sexual temptation, you are living what you claim to believe, which is that Jesus can, wants to, and will be enough for me. When, when an authority figure expects something of you that you don't want to do, not something explicitly sinful, 
but something that you don't want to do or something that you think unwise, whether it's your boss, your, your parent, your, your husband, whoever, perhaps you think to yourself, if I submit, I'm assuming a position of vulnerability. I'm, I'm handing over a, a piece of myself to that authority. When you comply, you are living what you say you believe, which is that Jesus can, wants to, and will guard what I've entrusted to Him until that day. When, when Jesus said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe, he was, he was calling him not simply to a frame of mind, but to trust in action. He's saying, don't, don't fear, don't, don't fall in a heap on the side of the road here, thinking that your daughter is gone forever. Rather, keep walking with me down this road to your house, believing that I will do what I said. As, as, as I've been talking about this, perhaps some of your consciences have been pricked. Maybe you have a situation where there's a, there's a clear thing to do. You, you know the right thing to do, and you're afraid that if you do the right thing, God won't sustain you, help you, guide you, protect you, or comfort you. And so you're tempted to do what you know to be the wrong thing, but what seems to be the safe thing. Well, remember that, that well-placed faith, that is faith that is truly placed in Christ, that, that has Christ as its object, it is expressed in action. If we really believe that Jesus is who He says He is, we will exhibit trust in action. Belief determines behavior. Do the right thing, believing that He will be what He says He is. A third theme in this text is that well-placed faith appropriates divine power. Well-placed faith appropriates divine power. There are a couple of striking things in this narrative about this woman, at least a couple. The first is that she is healed without any intention from Jesus. He, he did not intend to heal her. And that is striking for a number of reasons. There, there are people all around him all the time touching him. This whole crowd, they're all touching him. And yet, they're not siphoning off power from him. What is it about this woman that when she touches him, she is healed without Jesus' intention? Well, that question is answered by the second striking thing. And it comes in Jesus' commentation of her faith. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Or more literally, your, your faith has saved you. Jesus' statement, it, it makes the differentiation or it explains the difference between her touch and everybody else's touch. It wasn't just the touch and it wasn't just touching the right person, but it was touching the right person in faith. And divine power flowed from Jesus into her body. Faith is God's appointed means for the appropriation of divine power. Now, it is frequently the case with, with Christian doctrine that, that we, we kind of have to thread the needle in order to avoid error. And that certainly is the case with, with, with this. 
Because we, we might read this narrative in isolation, or we could even add chapter 6 to it, isolate these from the rest of the Bible, and arrive wrongly at the conclusion that faith is inherently powerful and authoritative. That's not at all what, what, we, what we're seeing here. It's not at all what the Bible teaches. We're saying that God chooses to administer His power through faith. God is completely in control. Faith is not inherently powerful and authoritative. However, some have read passages like this one here and the following narrative in chapter 6 and have completely missed that. That, that the woman was healed without Jesus' intention has led some to say, you see, faith, faith commands healing. Faith is the prime mover, the prime mover in healing. And in a sense, where there is strong faith, the Lord is left with no choice in the matter. And some have found confirmation of that idea, this, this inherent power and authority of faith, in the following narrative in chapter 6. And we'll see this, we'll see this next time. Chapter 6, Jesus goes to Nazareth, and the people there completely reject Him. They have no faith. And Mark tells us this about Jesus, quote, He could do no mighty work there, and He marveled because of their unbelief. And so some have concluded from that, see, where there is no faith, the Lord's hands are tied. But the problem with, with the notion that faith has inherent, inherent power and authority is that it just can't be sustained across, across the Scriptures. And we really don't even need to leave the book of Mark to establish that. If you remember when we were looking at that story in chapter 4, Jesus healing, healing the storm, remember, one of the points that we saw there was that Jesus' loving care is not determined by the strength of our faith. The disciples failed to trust Jesus in that situation, and He acted anyway. So it cannot be the case that our faith is like a spiritual Duracell battery that empowers Jesus to be who He is. Jesus does not run on faith batteries. Jesus is not at all either dependent upon our faith nor commanded by our faith. How, how could He be when He is the giver of faith? And, and we find that all over the New Testament, Ephesians 2.8, Philippians 1.29, Acts 13.48, Hebrews 12.2, we are dependent upon Him for faith. He's not dependent upon us, nor is He commanded by us when we have faith. So then, what are we to make of this statement Jesus makes to the woman? Your faith has made you well. Well, theologians over the centuries have have said that faith is the instrumental cause of God's work. Faith is the instrumental cause of God's work. And they've said that God's power is the efficient cause of His work. The efficient cause of His work. So, faith is the instrumental cause of God's work. His power is the efficient cause of His work. So, so an illustration may be helpful. I, I'm a novice, novice woodworker, and so if I, if I want to build a, a piece of furniture, th there are all kinds of, of tools that I can use, 
instruments that I can use. If I want to, to cut wood, there's, there's all kinds of instruments that I can use. If I want to join wood together, all kinds of instruments that I can use. In a sense, those instruments are causing things to happen to the wood. They are the instrumental cause. But I'm the efficient cause. I'm the one actually doing it. And, and, and I can make stuff without any of those instruments. Those, those tools, as, as the instrumental causes, they have no inherent power or authority. They sit in my garage all the time. And, and I have never gone out to the garage and found that they have spontaneously made a coffee table or, or a chair. It just doesn't happen. Because they're, they're merely an instrumental cause. I'm the efficient cause. And no one is going to go to, to my bedroom at home and see, see my bookshelf chair and say, wow, you've got an amazing table saw. No one is ever going to say, I'll give you $1,000 for your wood glue. Because they're not complimenting my instruments. They complement me because I did it. I'm the efficient cause of, of the things that I've made. The tools were the instrumental cause. Faith is not inherently powerful or authoritative. It is not a gun pointed to God's head, forcing Him to work. Neither is it the spiritual carbohydrates that enable Him to do His work, to function. Faith is essential, and it is significant, in that God chose it as a means through which He gives His power. That, that Jesus was not aware of what was happening as this woman was touching Him, that does not at all imply that divine power is ever out of divine control. And we, we, we've covered this at various times over the years. Th th this is something that's worth writing down. This is a, a crucial Christological truth. Jesus ministered in His incarnation. He ministered by the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. He ministered by the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament testifies to this. Numerous times, let me just give you one, one text. It's Acts 10.38. Acts 10.38 reads this way. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How did Jesus do all of the amazing things that he did? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this narrative... Jesus may not have been aware that this woman was touching Him as she was touching Him. The Holy Spirit was, and the power that was dispensed was dispensed by God the Spirit through faith. And it's clear that even this woman, she, she did not think that her faith had inherent power or, or authority because verse 33 reads, look there with me, it, it reads, but the woman knowing what had happened to her, it happened to her. Then she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. She understood her, her faith was not the active prime mover here. Something happened to her. Now, here, here's the catch with all this. The, the, the danger in my clarifying this regarding faith does not have inherent power is that I could be taken to be downplaying the significance of faith, which is actually the exact opposite of what Jesus is doing in this text. Jesus is emphasizing the significance of faith. 
And when, when we understand that, we may be a little bit confused or, or you think, Pastor Greg, why, why, why are you doing this? Faith does not have inherent power, and yet Jesus is emphasizing it. Why would He be emphasizing it then? Because God's power is what's doing it. How do we make sense of this? Jesus wants to emphasize faith because faith does two things. It emphasizes our lack of power and His all-sufficient power. Faith itself magnifies His power. So it is, it is as if Jesus is killing two birds with one stone by emphasizing faith. He is emphasizing His power by emphasizing faith. Faith is itself a denial of one's own power and a declaration of trust in His. Faith is the firm conviction, I'm not all I need. I, I am deficient in every way. He alone is all-sufficient. I need Him, and He will be what I need Him to be. This, this woman is, is a perfect picture of that. She's got nothing. I mean, she has spent every penny on doctors to no avail, and she comes to Jesus with empty hands, reaching for Him. Great picture of faith. It is the picture of reaching out with nothing of her own, wanting all of Him, trusting in all of Him. Faith is the simultaneous coming to the end of self and clinging to the sufficient provision of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, theoretically, God could have chosen a means other than faith for the appropriation of divine power, could have chosen something else, feats of strength or perfect grammar, something that would exalt man, something by which man might say, okay, here's something that I do in exchange for what God does for me, but that is exactly what makes faith the perfect means for the appropriation of divine power because it humbles man and it exalts Christ. Faith says, I can do nothing. Christ can and will do all for me. It is coming to the end of yourself and clinging to Him alone that opens the fullness of His strength. And you might write down two, two passages from 2 Corinthians where Paul gives a personal testimony to this effect. Two passages in 2 Corinthians, chapter 1 and chapter 12. Chapter 1 and chapter 12. There Paul tells us he had two situations, two different situations where, where God led him to the place where he had no choice but to despair of himself and rely completely on the God who raises the dead. And Paul rejoiced in that. You know why? Because Paul understood the kinds of things that happen when people trust in Christ. Do you know the kinds of things that happen when people trust in Christ? This book is full of them. It's full of them. Sick are healed. Stomachs are filled. Broken relationships are mended. Rain clouds go dry for three years. The sun in the sky stops moving across the sky. Corpses become living beings. And sinners become saints. Unbelievable things that only divine power, not human power, only divine power can do. 
When we say, I can't, Christ can and will. Amazing things happen. Now, remember earlier, we were considering that well-placed faith is expressed in action. And some of us have been convicted by situations in our own life where we've been failing to trust the Lord and do the right thing. We know what we need to do. We know what it is. But we have, we have been hesitating because we think, man, I, I just don't know if I can. That is the perfect place to be. That is the perfect place to be where, where, where you're saying, I can't. Fully convinced that you can't and fully convinced that they, He can, that puts you right on the cusp of, of experiencing something unfathomable the very power of God who raises the dead at work on your behalf. Is it, is it possible that in, in that impossible situation where you find yourself, that the Lord is expediting you to the end of yourself so that you will have nothing to cling to but Him? If, the, if, if that's the case, run! Run to the end of yourself and embrace Him, cling to Him, and act and get ready for the appropriation of divine power. Whatever you need, whatever you need in order to endure, in order to do the right thing, in order to be faithful, clinging to Him, you will have it. Because well-placed faith is God's appointed means for the appropriation of divine power. One final theme here is that well-placed faith is inspired by Christ. It's inspired by Christ. And now we want to jump down to verse 35. It says, while he was still speaking, while, while Jesus is still, still speaking to the woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Those words may take us again, may take us back to chapter 4, where the disciples are, are with Jesus in the boat, but He's asleep. Waves are crashing into the boat, boats filling up, so that these, these well-experienced fishermen, they believe they're going to die. Their circumstances are saying to them, there is no hope. It's very similar here to this, this report that Jairus receives from his house. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? When, when we struggle to trust in action, it may be because our eyes are seeing, our ears are hearing, our minds and hearts are being bombarded by a Christ-free narrative of our circumstances. And we, we could probably all identify with this. Think, some of us may have thought this week, man, these, these COVID cases are on the rise. What, what, if, what if everybody won't get the vaccine and it only gets worse? Others of us may have, may have thought, Oh, no, the COVID cases are on the rise. What if we get shut down again? Others may have thought, my spouse just seems more and more distant all the time. Something is really wrong. What if our marriage is in trouble and I can't fix it? 
or maybe test results came back and they, they're not great. What, what are we going to do? Or just gave in to that, that, that same old sin again. I, I can't do this. Whatever, whatever the circumstance, it, it is like the storm saying to the disciples, sleeping Jesus, no guarantee you are going to perish. It's like Jairus' messenger, your daughter's dead, Jesus, it's too late even for him. And, and those, those voices maximize the winds, they minimize Jesus, and our sinful tendency is to fix our eyes on the crashing waves and to fasten our ears on the harbinger of death such that our faith falls and our fears rise. The question is, what, what are we to do? The text gives us an indication here, and that is listen to, look to Jesus. Remove our eyes and ears from the object of fear and toward the object of faith. In both of those narratives, the storm and here with Jairus, Jesus spoke a better truth than the circumstances. Jesus proved Himself more than powerful enough to handle the storm, and He brought calm to the disciples. And immediately upon the announcement of no hope by the messenger to Jairus, in verse 36, Jesus says to Jairus, Don't fear, only believe. If we find ourselves struggling to trust in action, we must focus on the object of our faith, realizing he, he's more than just the object of our faith. He's also the founder and perfecter of our faith. R- remember, Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The greatest way to bolster flagging faith is to meditate on Christ and His gospel. Because when we do that, we are are reminded that we have never been in a worse spot than we were in our natural condition of estrangement from God. Having having offended Him by our our sustained disposition of rebellion, we had brought upon ourselves eternal damnation. We had lost the ability to enjoy Him. We We had lost even the ability to want reconciliation with Him. No way to make up for our sins and no good works to commend us to Him. We were lost and hell was to be our eternal destination. As tied up as we are about temporal difficulties, there has never been a more hopeless situation than that of our former deadness and sin. Former deadness and sin. The gospel, as we meditate on it, it reminds us that. There's a former. Why is it former? Because our deadness and sin died with Christ on the cross. It died with Christ on the cross. But unlike Jesus, it did, not ra- it did not rise from the dead three days later. Jesus was raised from the dead three days later, proving that by His indestructible life, sin and death had been defeated. So powerful is Jesus 
that he embraced the sin and death of all his people, buried it in himself, left it defeated in the grave while rising victoriously to life three days later and giving that life to all who have faith, who trust in him. And the, the gospel reminds us of, of, of all of that, reminds us this trouble that I have now, this is nothing compared to what I was outside of Christ. And Jesus took care of that. And that, that Jesus who did that, that Jesus is the same Jesus who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Through the ongoing proclamation of the gospel to ourselves, the ongoing proclamation of the gospel to one another, Jesus says to us, even now, don't fear, only believe. His work and His Word, by them, He inspires us to continue to place our faith in Him. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we need a constant diet of the Bible. We need a constant diet of gospel-rich books, gospel-rich conversation, gospel-rich sermons, gospel-rich podcasts for the purpose of having the very voice of Christ on board to remind us He is worthy of faith. He was worthy of faith then. He is worthy of faith now. He can be trusted. Well-placed faith is inspired by looking at Christ Himself. And so we must do that. Now, issue that you've been wrestling with during this message, this thing, that issue with which you've been struggling to trust Him, struggling to act rightly. Perhaps you, you would like someone to talk to about that, someone to, to help you think through what it would mean to practically walk in faith in that situation. And maybe it, it just doesn't seem to rise to the level of formal counseling, but you just need somebody to talk to. Our biblical counseling ministry has just begun to offer something that we call coffee with a counselor. And, and it is just a, an opportunity to have a low-key, informal, one-off conversation with someone who is a good listener and knows how to help someone think biblically through a situation and to think, how, how should I walk in faith biblically in response to to what's going on in my life right now. If, if, if you would say, I don't think I need counseling, I just need someone to help me think through how to walk in faith in this situation, get on the sign-up page of our website or, or, or the church app, sign up for coffee with a counselor, and one of our folks will reach out to you to set up a time to get together. Well-placed faith, well-placed faith. It has Christ as its object. Action is its expression. Divine power is its appropriation. The Lord and His gospel is its inspiration. And so let us place our faith well in Him. After I pray, here in a few moments, we're going to, we're going to spend a minute or so in silent reflection. And I would encourage you to spend that time prayerfully before the Lord, considering before Him, what He would have you to do, specifically you to do in response to the things that He has brought before us this morning.
Let's pray. Father, we are a collection of sinners become saints. You have done a miraculous work in us by grace, through faith, in your powerful Son, Jesus Christ. And we, we ask, Father, that as we, as we continue in these next few moments, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us and help us to think through the things that we've heard and, and how we, each individually, should walk in light of the truth that we've seen. If Jesus is all-powerful and He is compassionate, if He can help us, save us, if He wants to, and if, if we believe that He will, how will we live? Will You impress upon each of us, Lord, what You would have us to do in the coming days in response to Your truth? And would You so magnify Christ in our hearts that we would be very eager to do what You call us to do? We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus.